I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. Is it possible to forecast the future? Institute for the Future has been doing that for almost 50 years, and Kathy Van leads Institute for the Future's 10-year forecast, which was just released for IFTF clients. It explores seven economies working at once to produce a future with a lot of surprises. We talked to Kathy last week from her offices in Palo Alto. Kathy, Institute for the Future just presented its 10-year forecast. You see seven economies working at once. What are those economies? So I like to talk about the seven Cs. So the corporate economy, the consumer economy, the collaborative and creative economies, the civil, criminal, and crypto economies. So seven Cs. Let's take a couple at a time. Explain what you mean by the first two, the corporate and consumer economies, and and what you expect to happen in each. What what are the headlines? Okay. So um, the the corporate and consumer economies are really two sides of the same coin, and they're what we usually mean when we talk about the economy. Uh, The corporate economy is the legitimate economy. It's the economy that Uh, I like to say that we've sanctioned with our laws and with our treaties, and it's an economy that's organized for scale. So, you know, we all know that there are companies that have bigger GDPs than entire nation states. So legitimacy and scale are the cornerstones of the corporate economy. The consumer economy is the flip side of the corporate economy. It's where the corporate economy scales down to meet the household. It's where families organize the flow of uh, goods and services alongside flows of things like, I like to say, like affection, caring, hope, learning, and fun. So those are the kinds of uh, flows that households are managing. Now, the corporate economy today is volatile, and it's vulnerable like it's never been before. And um, this is why. It's counting on assets that it may actually never be able to tap. And there's a term for this, and the term is stranded assets. And this is a phrase that got a lot of play last year when the London School of Economics released its report on stranded carbon assets. And their argument goes something like this, that if we want to avoid a global temperature increase of more than uh, two degrees Celsius, and, and we do if we don't want to set off irreversible climate change, then we're not going to be able to burn even a quarter of our proven fossil fuel reserves. Of course, carbon assets aren't the only stranded assets that we have to worry about in the corporate economy, and I think every technology company knows exactly what we're talking about here. As innovation accelerates and technology companies are always sitting on assets that are losing their value faster than ever. And even companies that don't make and sell technology those companies are losing value on the processes and the infrastructure that they've invested in. And so all of this adds up to a kind of structural volatility in the corporate economy, a persistent volatility that's actually baked into our future. So uh, for companies, the next decade is really all about automation and automating, and we'll turn to robots to give us better profit margins and keep costs down and keep quality high. Um, to avoid uh, productivity hits from depression and illness in the workforce, and and really to make it easy to quickly reprogram processes without retraining the factory workforce. But we won't just 
automate the factory floor. I think it's important to keep in mind that robots will work their way into the sector of low-paid service workers as, as well and even into management. So what we, what we can expect to see is that algorithms will begin to replace an entire layer or maybe even several layers of corporate management, and they may eventually even replace the C-suite. Um, but maybe we can go into that in, in our seventh economy. But circling back right now to the consumer economy for just a minute, uh, this economy of households, um, the, the first thing I think to note there is that the households aren't what they used to be, really just about any place in the world. And today, households come in every variety, and they're going to continue to change really rapidly as the millennials um, move into the process of creating their first households over the next decade. Now, just thinking about the millennials for, for a moment, they, that's the largest generation in history. There are 2.5 billion of them. And millennials are not going into debt for homes and cars, which are the things that used to define the consumer household, but they don't anymore. What millennials are going into debt for is college. They're coming out of college as the best educated generation in history, but also with the largest debt of any generation in history. And uh, at the same time, their employment outlook isn't so great. So among the age group uh, of 24 to 35 years, which is the age that the millennials will be in 10 years from now, the employment statistics have been trending downward for a couple of decades, actually. And, um, and today, many millennials are sort of piecing together their incomes from lots of different micro-work tasks. And if these, prospect, if these are their prospects for the future, then what they're, what they're doing today is they're investing in the present. So they're going into debt for today's latest technology and for things like travel, and they're spending their money on new experiences. I like to say experiences that chase them around town or around the world on their mobile devices. And more and more, those devices, those mobile devices that everybody's carrying around these days, will be making purchasing decisions for them. So geofences um, are going to tell them what they can buy now, here, uh, to get the look or the feel or the relationship that they want right now. And this isn't just true for millennials, of course. I don't want to paint the millennials as an irresponsible generation. I think all of us are turning to our smart devices um, as spending machines, really. So what's the takeaway for the consumer and the and the and the corporate economies together. I think both economies are automating over the next decade, but um, they're, they're automating something different. The corporate economy is really automating that volatility that I was talking about, and the consumer economy is automating instant gratification. So in addition to the corporate and consumer economies, you mentioned there is also or there's also a collaborative economy and there is a creative economy. What what are those economies and again, what are the big headlines for the next ten years? The collaborative and creative economies have great potential to build on each other, um, but they're also economies that shift a lot of the risk a lot of the economic risk uh, from corporations to individuals. And let me explain what I mean by that. 
the collaborative economy began as a peer-to-peer alternative to corporate and consumer economies. And um, the proposition was simple. You have assets that you're not using. Uh, you turn them into value by sharing them directly with peers. The collaborative economy does this by uh, taking the risk out of peer-to-peer stranger exchanges to a certain extent. So where the corporate economy is experiencing a long-term decline in return on corporate assets, the collaborative economy is creating a growing return on individual assets. So decline in corporate return on assets and increase in collaborative economy individual assets return on individual assets. Now, in order to do that, the collaborative economy needs peer-to-peer platforms, and that's the platform that matches you up with the right person for a trade. And it also gives you the power to say whether a person is trustworthy or, or not. And interestingly, it's also a platform that allows you to begin to function as a community or a constituency. Um, Now, it turns out that someone owns that platform, typically, and typically that someone is a corporation. So in reality, the collaborative economy isn't so much a collaboration between peers. It isn't so much a peer-to-peer economy as it is a collaboration between the collaborative economy and a collaborative platform economy. And so when we look at the headline stories about Uber and Instacart, what we're really seeing is – I think a very savvy move by the corporate economy to reduce the risk of stranded assets. Those stranded assets that I mentioned were the cause of corporate volatility. So companies are locking in processes, um, not assets. Um, You've probably heard statements like the, like, Company X raised $2 billion in its IPO with only 13 people and no assets. And that's really what the collaborative economy is all about. People, individual people, are providing the assets, whether it's a ladder or a car or an hour of intellectual labor. And if you don't happen to have those assets, companies will help you invest on, in them by building on top of the platform. So it's really an investment game, and it's a game that's taking advantage of the scale that we are today, the scale of 7.3 billion people, people with potentially trillions of dollars to convert to value. And so you could say it's an investment in distributed abundance Um, And the higher you go up the levels, the higher the potential payouts, but also the higher the risks. So structurally, what these corporate-owned platforms are doing is that they're shifting the risk of investment outside the corporation. Now, um, we see a similar pattern in the creative economy, which has a much longer history, of course, than the collaborative economy. And we usually think of the creative economy as the world of art and entertainment, but it also includes R&D and the kind of venture innovation strategies that you see increasingly in different places like the San Francisco Bay Area and uh, Shenzhen in uh, China and really in, in many places in the world today. And the The creative economy is typically a small part of the global economy, a small contributor to global GDP. But I think what's important about the creative economy is that it's a buffer. It's a shock absorber. And this is because uh, it's organized largely as a freelance labor market. And in tough times, this freelance labor market can swell and become a transition zone for those who are underemployed. 
So today, as the corporate economy automates and the collaborative economy shifts economic production to the individual, the freelance marketplace has been steadily growing. And it's actually expected to be 40% by 2020, so five years from now, and possibly as high as 50% by 2025. And so the creative economy has been absorbing this freelance workforce, um, not all of it, but a lot of it. And it's been absorbing it in movements like, in creative movements like the maker movement, the artisanal foods movement, and even um, crowdfunded innovation. But uh, the creative economy has a problem. It's traditionally been a long tail economy. And that means that a few people do really well, and a lot of people struggle every day and basically hoping that eventually they'll win the creative lottery. So you just think of all of the the artists who have struggled over the years to become well-known and, and earn a, a living wage from their art. Um, the creative economy has not supported that very well, and the reason is that the creative economy uh, has relatively few distribution channels, and those channels are filtering all the time. So, there, because there aren't very many of them, they're the gatekeepers, and they're strongly filtering the value that's latent in the base, so the long tail, if you will, um, all of those people who would, would like to make a living from their artistic endeavors. So, the one thing to keep in mind, though, is that the long-tail economies can be transformed by peer-to-peer platforms, by true peer-to-peer platforms, that, because as the number of channels for exchange grows, and as it grows exponentially, really, the long-tail curve can shift to fill in that, um, the, the, the missing middle between uh, the few distribution channels at the top, the few who are doing well at the top, and the, the people who are eager to enter into the creative economy. So th- there's an opportunity for the creative economy to take advantage of the infrastructure of the collaborative economy, to take advantage of this richer ecosystem of distribution channels and actually build out uh, the missing middle and fill in the pathways for exchange of new value. And likewise, there's an opportunity for the collaborative economy to build on the innovation of the creative economy to create new kinds of value and therefore deliver on its promise of abundance. And if this were to happen, we have a really very virtuous cycle. And of course, the danger is that the collaborative economy will actually come to look more like the traditional creative economy and will turn into just another long tail economy where everyone is tapping some minimal value like a micro work gig for $5 an hour to uh, create a kind of modern subsistence lifestyle, a technologically connected version of an urban subsistence lifestyle. So the creative economy is a choice, a virtuous cycle, or a modern subsistence lifestyle. Uh, scary the way you put it in terms of our choices. In Night Cities, we can't help but be interested in the civil economy and have a particular interest there. Describe what you mean by the civil economy and how that unfolds over the next 10 years. So the civil economy is actually where we're going to make that choice, I was just saying, between the virtuous cycle and the subsistence lifestyle. 
And by civil economy, we mean the economy of people who are acting as citizens, the, uh, the collective of all of us acting as citizens. It's where we encode our values. It's where we decide what's legitimate, where we say which economic practices are legitimate and which aren't. Um, we're not surprised to find the, the sort of same pattern of fragmentation here that we're seeing in the other economies. So we often talk about the GDP of a country, um, but nation states as civil units and as economic units are really struggling to maintain their identities and their, their authority and their, their economic power in the world as it's unfolding. And at the same time, we see cities actually rising to the occasion, and they're becoming the standard bearers for the civil economy. So around the world, they're actively reinventing themselves as economic centers and centers of innovation, and often, I think, as centers of open innovation. And they're playing to their local citizens. They're paving the way for them to build local versions of both the creative and the collaborative economies. And I mentioned Shenzhen, China, uh, a bit ago, and they're on the path to becoming the world's leading maker city. And in Korea, Seoul has launched its own collaborative taxi service in place of Uber as a way to make sure that its citizens can earn a viable livelihood. But I think that there's a dilemma in the civil economy, a dilemma for cities in particular, and that most of them have been built on the corporate and consumer economies, and they depend on the tax base that comes from having a reliable workforce that's spending money on taxable goods and services. They get special taxes from hotels and urban industries. They depend on the infrastructures of regulated industries like the taxicab and restaurant industries. And they have bureaucracies that have really been built up over decades on city codes that legitimize these traditional economies. But in order to tap the new value in the emerging collaborative and creative economies, they have to revamp that entire system. They have to choose between the traditional taxicab services and the collaborative Uber-style services. They have to abandon their sort of steady and known incomes uh, sources for their city services and depend instead on unknown citizen source services and crowdfunded civic projects. And they have to hope that that freelance economy actually can absorb all of the workers who are getting pink slips as the corporate economy automates. So this is a classic what we like to call first curve, second curve problem. The old systems are no longer providing the advantages that they used to. That's the first curve. But the new systems aren't yet reliable and they're not predictable. Speaking of the civil economy and the way you have and the action is moving to cities, Kathy, if you were responsible for a city, if you were mayor or leader of a city, what moves would you be making to respond to the way you see the 10-year the forecast unfolding? It's always <laughs> it's always a challenge to put yourself in the place of, you know, somebody who is really walking this line between the traditional interests in an urban area and the interests of the innovators who really have a lot to offer but that is is completely disruptive. And so one of the things that we talk about at the institute is this first curve second curve story where 
at some point you have to decide when you're going to move from the first curve to the second curve. So if I were the mayor of, of a city and I, and I saw this really clearly happening in my city and I wanted to make something happen, I would be plotting out on two curves, one that's declining and one that's rising, exactly what my moves are for which are the where's what's the right timing to move from one one set of uh, rules and regulations and support for different kinds of activities to the to a new set and trying to figure out which of those what what rather than engaging in a, a polar debate about which one is good and which one is bad, recognizing that one is declining and the other is rising, and there's a strategic choice to be made about the timing of that. Tough choices. So we've talked about corporate and consumer, collaborative and creative, and now civil. The two economies that you've identified left, criminal and crypto, which are juicy and fascinating. Uh, talk about those a little bit. Sure. I had the opportunity this past year to work with several of the world's leading thinkers in the zone of the criminal economy, and it was really eye-opening to me. It was a, a total eye-opening experience. It really made me go back and think through a lot of the forecasts that we had done in the past few years. And there are two big messages that I took away from that. And one is that the criminal economy is actually staggeringly large. It's so much larger than I imagined. And the other is it's pioneering the next big economy, which is the crypto economy. So that's how those pairs hang together. Um, there are lots of different ways that you can define the criminal economy. And in a sense, the criminal economy is a little bit hard to measure. But just for ease of naming it, let's let's stick to the organized to organized crime right now, and that's an economy that we know enjoys uh, two trillion in profits worldwide each year. So that's two trillion in profits, and it's easy to think of this economy. I you know I watch TV, and so I think of you know all those thugs and gangs and ex-cons and money laundering swine that you see on TV. And it's all of those things, but um, those are really just the fringes of this economy. The criminal economy today is completely integrated into all the other economies. And um, by far the largest sector of organized crime is financial crimes and money laundering, and that's followed by crimes of governance. So, for example, states that have been prosecuted for human rights violations or misuse of development funds. And to sustain that kind of profit margin, $2 trillion a year, organized crime has its own banks and its own law firms and accountancies, and most of those are operating as completely legitimate companies within the corporate economy. Now, the interesting thing here is that the criminal economy is also an innovation economy. So we think about the civil economy these days as being an innovation e economy that's really pushing the collaborative and creative economy out into the foreground. But the criminal economy is also an innovation economy um, in many of the same zones. So in Mexico, it has innovated wireless mesh communication systems. And in Colombia, it's actually innovated smart self-driving semi-submersibles, so uh, smart submarines that sink themselves when they're being pursued. 
And it's also the economy where we've seen the birth and growth of a new economy based on an entirely new peer-to-peer technology, and we can call this the, the crypto economy. So the, the crypto economy is based on this technology that's so innovative, really, that most of us have trouble, I think, wrapping our minds around what it is. And, of, of course, we're talking here about Bitcoin. Um, most of us have heard about Bitcoin now and cryptocurrencies and the underlying technology for that, which is the blockchain. And the starting point for this economy is encryption, and the goal is really quite simple. It's to create secure transactions. And we want uh, to create secure digital transactions, whether we're trading health information or financial information or strategic business plan, even battery systems, new battery systems, or contributing to our local church or a politician. Whatever we're trading, we'd like to think that we're in control of who has access to that information and, in fact, the value that's actually being traded. And we know that on the Internet as it currently stands, that's not the case. So encryption, so-called end-to-end encryption, where every data packet is encrypted at every point along its path between you and the intended recipient, that's the goal. And while there are a number of ways to encrypt, the one that I think has captured our attention is blockchain technology, which is the basis for Bitcoin. And Bitcoin, in turn, has captured our attention because it's really a new way to organize money. It's a currency that doesn't require a bank or a government to sanction it. And so we can control all of our own transactions and keep them completely hidden without having to go through an intermediary, without having to go through a bank. So we actually get to own our own money with this technology. Now, when we look out at the 10-year horizon for uh, the crypto economy, uh, what we see is uh, crypto 1.0. That's where we are right now. And it's all about encrypted currencies, and those may be Bitcoin or they may be um, these so-called colored coins or purpose-built coins that sit on top of Bitcoin and are created for a particular purpose. Or it may be a, uh, a new contender like Ether that was launched by the Ethereum Foundation late last year. And we can use these currencies for lots of different things. Uh, we can invest in our favorite musician or we can open up a new monetary exchange where we trade these crypto tokens the same way that we trade stocks. And, of course, criminals can also use it to launder money. So that's crypto 1.0, but we're now actually on the cusp of something that we could think of as crypto 2.0. And this is where we're really laying the foundation for an entirely different kind of economic future. And this is a truly distributed economy that doesn't require anyone to own a vehicle or even a platform like Uber for getting and giving rides. Um, It doesn't require anybody to own a corporation. Uh, And at the heart of crypto is decentralization, and it's decentralization such as we've never known. And the first stage in this transformation is the creation of smart contracts. So smart contracts are computer algorithms, so these little computer programs, that execute a particular set of transactions or functions according to predefined agreements. 
uh, a smart contract might just transfer a fee, say in bitcoins, to your account when you complete a microtask. But here's where it gets really interesting. A corporation is really just a contract between an abstract entity, so your company, and a government. So it's possible to program a smart contract that goes out and establishes itself as a corporation. It's programmed to hire microworkers to pay them and to sell their work to other buyers at a profit. It has no management, no CEO, and it may not even have a board of directors. And this is called a DAC, or a Distributed Autonomous Corporation. This kind of vision of the future also sets the precedent for things, objects, to become corporations. So a driverless car in 2025, and we do expect that there will be driverless cars by 2025, it might be a self-owned corporation that's programmed to pick up riders for a fee and then optimize its choices, both for profit and for, say, minimum energy use or any other parameter that, that we might, might want to control. And that's where this economy, this crypto economy, that's, uh, is headed. And, um, and this is the economy that's already embedded in the criminal economy. You know, when you talk about the crypto economy, Kathy, I could imagine it being very difficult to tax in that economy. Am I missing something? I think that it's just a question of working out the the tax the taxable transactions. The one of the things that's interesting about the crypto economy and I may not have made this clear in the way that I was talking about it, but the actual transactions in a crypto economy are all completely visible. What's not visible is who's doing them. So it's it would be possible to actually track the flows of value. The question is, who gets taxed? And, you know, a tax system is, is just a technology, mm. just like any other technology. And if we put our minds to it, we could figure out a way to, I believe, to create the kind of – our tax systems are really built to achieve a purpose, right? They're, they're built to support the collective will, ideally. Right, right. And and so there are lots of other technologies for doing that within this, um, this framework. But it's just that we're so used to a whole set of institutions. And I think that this is really where we run into that first curve, second curve problem. We're used to thinking of everything in terms of the first curve institutions that we're familiar with. And we, and we haven't figured out yet or turned our attention to the creative problem of saying what other if we assume a very different kind of institutional structure underlying all of that, what other kinds of technologies could we create that would achieve those social goals? There's so many interesting implications of of the of these seven economies and and how you expect them to uh, play out over ten years that for so many of the things we're concerned about. Let me just ask you one more question. Sure. Is the ten year forecast? Should we think of it as a prediction? Should we think of it as a possible future, a framework, a map? How do you think about it in terms of the decisions you have to make about your own work and, and life? It's a great question. And, and we always say, you know, 
the work that we do at the Institute for the Future isn't about prediction. We don't do predictions. We don't claim to do predictions. I like to think of it, and, I, and especially the 10-year forecast as a whole, I like to think of it as a provocation for an important conversation. So it's an internally consistent story about the future that helps us think together about the kind of future that we want to make. It helps us make better decisions in the future. So a provocation for an important conversation. Thank you, Kathy, for providing us the provocation for a good conversation. And thanks for being with us on Night City. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Kathy Van is Program Director of the 10-Year Forecast at Institute for the Future. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities or at C. Coletta. And each week you can get the five things you need to know from this interview and all of our interviews by going to knightfoundation.org forward slash features forward slash Night Cities. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.